welcome to the SOC podcast by the SOC. In longhand, that's some ornithological chat by the Scottish Ornithologists Club. For people who are listening, expecting some of the chat to be ornithological, you should you might be disappointed because it's pretty much all going to be ornithological chat. Maybe that S should be substantial. And my guest today is Sarah Harris. Hello, Sarah. If you could start by telling us who you are and where you are. And I usually ask people to tell us what you do, but actually I want you to describe what you used to do and also what you do do now, please. <laughs> yeah, a little bit complicated situation at the minute. So um, um, I am the Seabird Monitoring um, Programme Officer, oh, organiser for uh, BTO. Um, and that's just started in the last couple of weeks. But before that, I was the breeding bird survey organiser, which also involved managing the waterways breeding bird survey as well. So basically, I'm in the surveys team at BTO, moving from one position to another at the minute. And I'm based down in, in Norfolk, so working from the Thetford office and enjoying the birding in the brecks. Lovely. It sounds it sounds very nice down there. Um, so we'll get on to the seabird stuff later on, I think. What we'll talk about mostly is is the breeding bird survey, um, because that's something that you've been working on for longer than a couple of weeks. So you've probably got a bit more to say about that. So for anyone who doesn't know, can you sort of give us the elevator pitch for what the breeding bird breeding bird survey is? <laughs> we can't pronounce any of these surveys today. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so the breeding bird survey is basically a widespread. Um, monitoring scheme that's looking at the population changes primarily of um, 118 species so these are the sort of more widespread commoner species that um, we're seeing across the UK. As I say it's managing uh, it's monitoring the population changes but the data can also be used to look at abundance information so the number of birds we've got across the UK um, it's used in general research, so whether that's looking at things like um, the agri-environment schemes and how they're going, or um, species-specific research, so there's lots of data there. And it's basically based on randomly selected one kilometre squares. People visit these squares twice a year, uh, walk two transects through the square, counting all of the adult birds that they're seeing along the transects and then sending that data in to us at, at, at BTO. So I should also say that these surveys are um, a partnership survey with BTO, JNCC and RSPB. So funding from a few different places there um, to ensure that uh, the majority of our birds are monitored in the UK. Sorry, JN, JNC who? <laughs> you familiar should, with that? I, <laughs> I should point out that I used to work for JNCC, so that was, that was just a silly little joke. Um, OK, so to give people some idea of the, the sort of the scale of the survey I'm gonna I'm gonna hit you with some numbers <laughs> and you're gonna tell me what they mean okay <laughs> let's let's see if this works if, if it doesn't work we can just cut it out <laughs> <laughs> Which is okay. never happened. <laughs> yeah so let's let's try this one. Oh, I hate reading numbers out so 14 14,544 is that the uh, kilometres walked by volunteers during active surveying? <laughs> that is that is a number of kilometres walked during the act, yeah active surveying. That's that's pretty impressive. Okay, um, I was going to ask 118, but you've already told us what that one is. I should say also that um, across the survey since it started, um, volunteers have almost walked the equivalent of to the moon. 
So in the next really? three years, they'll have reached the moon in active survey and walking. In, in the next three <laughs> years, did you say? In the next couple of years, yeah. Excellent. <laughs> and wouldn't it be cool if they if the surveys go on for long enough for them to make it back from the moon as well? That would be nice, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so uh, another number, 233. 233. I'll give you I'll give you a clue. This is this is all relevant to the uh, 2021 breeding bird survey. Is that the number of species recorded? Yeah. <laughs> number of species recorded. <laughs> oh my goodness, you're taking me back to March here. <laughs> <laughs> you're doing very well in that case. I couldn't even tell you what I did last week. Um, so 2,685. The number of volunteers taking number of part. volunteers. This is very impressive. Um, and then this one was my favourite one. This is lifted from the report. It, it's not a, it's not an exact number. It's a number tickling four thousand. Oh, uh, the number of squares being covered. Yeah. Now, can I just sort of interject there and say when I read tickling the words <laughs> tickling four thousand, I was delighted because. I think it's really important that these things are read and that are readable. You know, they sort of, you know, it's great that they are there and we can refer to them, but quite often I'll see a paper or something and I think, I need to know that's there, but I'm not going to read it until I have to read it. But these things, you've obviously written it with people be, ingesting the information in mind. You know, it's there to yeah. be read rather than to be referred to. And I think that's really, really important. Yeah, it's good. it needs to be um, accessible to the wider public. The volunteers themselves need to be interested in it, but it also needs to go to uh, decision makers, policy makers and like government and places like that. So it's got to have a lot of different scope in there, really. Yeah, <laughs> but every, everyone knows what tickling 4000 means. So more of that as far as I'm concerned. So like you say, so there were 108 trends generated for 118 different species of birds. Now, because we're the SOC, obviously, we're going to have a, a think about the, the Scottish trends. But if you consider those 118 species overall, what's what's the big picture? Look, what, How does it look for our birds? Um, I think when you are looking over all the trends, there's these are sort of kind of excluding some of our rarer, um, almost extinct kind of species. So we are looking at the more widespread species, but even so, it's pretty even the species that are increasing and uh, in decline. But the 2021 report kind of highlighted some of the milestones being reached by some wader species. Um, so things like um, curlew, common sandpiper, um lapwing red shank they're kind of hitting either the 25 percent decline mark or the 50 percent decline mark around about so that was quite striking and that's one of the things that we pulled out from um this year's report um yeah but i mean it can get a bit depressing when you're reading about a lot of declines in species but then you've got to remember that there's things like black caps and goldfinches that are doing really well. And you know, there's good news stories in there, like the red kites uh, increasing and little egrets and things like that, which you'll see more and more of, I'm sure, soon. <laughs> um, I mean, they're still pretty uncommon up here in Aberdeen. Um, they're, they're regular. There are a few sites where they where they hang around all the time. But, you know, they are, as you will probably expect, becoming more and more common. Certainly not very common on my local patch though, so it would be a red letter day to see a little ugret <laughs> on my patch. So, I mean, if we begin to focus on the Scottish trends, waders are one of the sort of key groups that are 
you would you would sort of badge under bad news, I guess. I'll just mm -hmm. I'll just quote some statistics. Um, so curlew and lapwing down about 60%, oyster catcher down 36%, common sandpiper down 28%. Do we do we have any idea what the what the drivers for these declines are? Um, yeah, I think some species are better understood than others. Um, so common sandpiper, I think there's not much that we understand about um, their declines in general. There was one paper, but that was from a site in England that suggested disturbance might be an issue for breeding birds. But that's kind of all we can say about that at the minute. But of course, because they're migrating as well, we don't know what's happening during their journey. Um, their journey south or over in their wintering grounds. So there's potential there as well for, for that species. For some of the other species, oyster catchers, um, lapwing, curlew, we'll be looking obviously at what happens to them in Scotland uh, year round. So that's a little bit more helpful. There's been lots of tracking work done for curlews as well, but um, especially in places like Wales. I think changes in land management is a big factor for a lot of these species. So um, afforestation will be impacting some species. Uh, predator control can help some species. Draining of land is obviously going to be a bit of a problem for species, especially things like lapwing and your red shanks. So kind of wetting up land again can really help them. But also a little bit of a mosaic of habitat for some of our species. So you'll have some birds that will nest in one habitat type and then take their chicks to a neighbouring area, like maybe a wetter area to, to forage. So it's trying to build up a bit of a mosaic across habitats for some of these species, uh, making sure that we're planting trees in the right places. So it's one of those things where, you know, tree planting might be really good for, for one species and not so good for another. It's not a, not a simple thing to fix. No, I mean, it's always, <laughs> it's always very, very complex, isn't it? You know, I think it's, it's it's worth mentioning that what what surveys like the Breeding Birds Survey do is they tell us if there's a problem. They don't tell they don't necessarily tell us what the problem is or, or certainly what we need to do to solve the problem. So that it's almost like an early warning system, and that prompts further research. And then the conservation is sort of implemented off the back of that, rather than just off the back of of the trends themselves. Yeah. So I think the other thing. Um that's great about the BBS is that um, we've got enough data to produce uh, trends for different countries as well as the UK as a whole. So for things like oyster catcher, we have actually seen that um, the species is increasing in England and declining in Scotland. So that's another kind of potential clue as to, to what might be happening or how different areas of affecting the species in different ways. So um, in England, they tend to be moving a little bit more inland. It's not really something we're seeing as much in Scotland, although obviously they are inland. So that kind of adds a little bit more to the kind of puzzle. Yeah. And I think perhaps the elephant in the room is, is climate change as well, which is affecting all things, I guess. Uh, and then there's these added layers of complexity that you're talking about as well. Or at least that's my that's my appreciation of it. And that's almost certainly driving other trends in Scotland. So, for example, we'll get on to some things that are increasing soon, like um, Chetty's Warbler and Nuthatch, which are of particular interest in Scotland. I mean, I don't know anything about those two species, but my guess is that those those birds are increasing primarily as a result of, of, the, of the climate getting warmer. 
Yeah. So again, that's that's a bit of a complicated one because um, the climate change isn't helping the curlies. So <laughs> it's, um, the same thing. So the curlies are kind of having to move to a higher elevation and um, they're basically going to get pushed off the top of the, the hills and have anywhere to breed. And then you've got nut hatches that are obviously benefiting and spreading north and westwards and increasing in numbers and, and finding it quite pleasant, really. And surviving over the winter um, a little bit better thanks to climate change. Yeah, so a mixed picture with that as well. <laughs> this is all very humbling. I, I've always, I always say I don't actually know anything about birds. And uh, well, this is making it very evident to me that I don't actually know anything about birds. I sort of <laughs> tend to focus on what they look like and what they sound like, whereas you seem to know all of it. So well, great. It makes for a much more interesting podcast if at least one of us knows what we're talking about. <laughs> it makes it a very complicated podcast. <laughs> <laughs> okay so like you said it's important to stress that it's not all bad news there are there are winners as well as losers um if we can put if we can put it in those terms and i've made a note of some of the biggest winners and to me it feels like a sort of a rather random selection of passerines so for example yeah. great spotted woodpecker increase of 405 percent chiff chaff 982 percent tree sparrow 400 85 and then black carp and goldfinch with you know increases in a similar in a similar sort of ballpark to the others do we know what's what's going on there so for the the tree sparrow one it, it fascinates me i think the thing to remember is that there used to be loads more than this and um they pretty much disappeared so a lot of this is kind of more of a recovery rather than a increase from a baseline but it's you know it's still good news there has been some local scale kind of schemes to try and help the species out but to see a you know a scotland-wide trend that's um, 485 is pretty uh, impressive and something that would be quite interesting to look into so i think you said chiff chaffs yeah benefiting again from being able to move further north and west and uh, climate change but also there's a species like blackcap as well that isn't migrating quite as far over winter which could be helping them to stay fit and strong over the winter and, and get back in a, a kind of good state for the breeding season. So that could be helping helping those two species. Willow warbler is an interesting one as well. Of course, it's something that I rarely hear down in Norfolk now. You know, I'll, I'll hear them now and then on, the, on my local patch, but it's worrying how they have just disappeared. And we're seeing a 35% increase in Scotland. So they're all... They're also benefiting from kind of easier climate in Scotland for the breeding season. But then how much is this going to be pushing birds further north and west? And is it going to end up pushing them out? So it looks really good for a bit and then it might end up stabilising or, or declining longer term. Yeah, so um, the, the things that might affect things like snow bunting, doctoral ptarmigan in the short term, things getting pushed out of their niche you know, we are looking long term, if we ever get that far into the future, of the same thing happening for those species that are currently sort of spreading northwards, I guess. Although it's impossible to know what, what that's going to look like. So regional trends, the survey is designed well enough to pick out different changes in different regions. Uh, mm -hmm. And that there are obviously just sort of, which means there must be different drivers within different uh, regions for change. And I think we might have sort of touched on this already with, you know, different farming practices or sort of land management practices 
driving the waders and stuff like that. But the willow warbler one is, is really, really interesting. It's something that has always been relatively numerous around Aberdeen, as far as I can remember, but certainly within the last five or six years, numbers have seemed to have shot up and it you know it's not not unusual for me to go out on a you know on a may morning and hear 25 30 willow warblers singing in essentially what is some sort of shelter belts around some football pitches basically it's, it's not it's nothing remarkable the habitat and yeah they seem to be fine in any i remember i used to work on the isle of sky for a bit and just having them all the way along like every roadside everywhere you went it was just another will of all the territory another one another one it was just incredible and it's just not like that down down where i am anymore such a shame i don't know it, my spring would be entirely different if it wasn't for will you know if it had no will of warbler song I'd, I'd be a much less happy birder yeah i'll i'll just tweet a recording of Willow Warbler song every now and again, and people can dip in and out of it as often as they want. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds lovely. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so I think well, we've we've talked about a couple of these species already, but there are some species that might have sort of particular interest to birders in Scotland, like sort of Chetty's Warbler and Nuthatch. We've explained why, uh, well, why we think they're increasing. Nuthatch is pretty regular in lots of places in the south of Scotland. It's still quite rare further north. It, read, it bred in North East Scotland for the first time last year, and I think it bred in Highland recently as well. Chetties are still pretty rare in Scotland, maybe five or six records now, but we're seeing a rush of records over the last couple of years. And that, yeah, that's, you know, that's we're a... confident that that's the beginning of, of the, I was going to say invasion, that's not the word I'm looking for. <laughs> but well, let's just call it the, the invasion of the Chetties Warbler. <laughs> It doesn't sound very threatening, if I'm honest. <laughs> no. <laughs> Noisy, but not very threatening. Um, no. So they really have increased. So across the UK as a whole, it's over 600% they've increased by. Um, and they're, they're another one that's really benefiting from these warmer warmer winters. And it's kind of giving them a little bit more strength to head even further north than they, than they have already. On the other end of the scale, so while we welcome noisy Chetty's warblers with open eyes, <laughs> It feels very likely now that marsh tit is sort of no longer breeding in Scotland, and that marsh tit have suffered pretty large declines all over the UK, haven't they? I think I don't think I've written it down, but I remember forty six percent. Is that right? Yes. You'll have to take my word for it. Do we do we know yeah. what's is, is this a similar situation with willow tit? Are they pretty sort of specialised in what habitats they require, or or what's going um, on there? So I think this is another potential issue with uh, the state of understory in uh, in woodland areas, um, deer browsing especially. And I think you've got more deer species moving up north as well into Scotland. So they were pretty marginal in Scotland anyway, around the borders mostly, I think. So yeah, I think we're looking at uh, habitat quality in the understory for foraging and for nesting. There has been suggestion about competition with other species, so your great tits, uh, your blue tits, that sort of thing. And I think, if I remember rightly, great tits are increasing in, in Scotland and uh, blue tits look to be as well. So, I mean, there could be a connection there. But um, I think if for a lot of these things, if you've got pretty decent habitat for a species to forage and nest in, then they can look after themselves a little bit better with the other pressures, such as from other species that they might be facing. Yeah, there's a there's a buffer there, isn't there? So at the moment, Breeding Bird Survey can generate trends for 118 different species, which is admirable and very cool. What would it take for to sort of increase that, that number? 
So in Scotland, we can produce trends for 71 species now, which is also pretty impressive, especially yeah. given um, the remoteness of much of Scotland and trying to get volunteers out to some of these really tricky, hard to reach areas. Um, so I think there's a couple of things here. One is that we, we are wanting to cover all habitat types. So we're trying not to be biased in any of that. And I think we do in Scotland tend to get more higher coverage in kind of lowland areas nearer to populations, which is all quite obvious, really. It's where the, the people and the birders are. Um, so we have been trying schemes such as Upland Rovers to uh, whereby people can go and do a one off survey on a square in a very remote area. And then they're not committing to this. So for every other square, it's, we aim for it to be consistent data. So it's the same person every visit year on year. With Upland Rovers, we've kind of lowered the standards a little bit, as it were, but only for squares that we feel is, you know, it's really worth it that we need to get some more data for some of these areas. So Upland areas, really. So you can do an Upland Rover square as a one off. And, and there's kind of two aims for that. One is to increase coverage in general so you get a more rounded trend for the species we're already reporting on so we might have a, a meadow pipit trend but we want to make sure that it's a meadow pipit trend that that covers all habitat types not a lowland scotland meadow pipit trend yeah. we want a scotland meadow pipit trend so that will help with that sort of thing getting coverage in these remote areas um but it could also bring some some new species into the data set as well which would be cool the biggest kind of blocker for new trends is that the species needs to be seen on at least 30 squares per year on average since the survey began. So 1994, the species has to be seen on 30 squares on average since the survey began. So the problem with that is that some of these species are changing in population uh, over that time. So what we've also done is we now produce 10 year trends. So that just covers the last 10 years. And that can help us pick up some of the species that are maybe moving into Scotland or increasing in numbers. Um, and we do a five year trend as well. So we've got three species now, which we've just managed to pick up by reducing that that kind of th threshold from a uh, you know 25 ish year average to a, a five year average. And we've now got trends for Sparrowhawk, Windchat and Spotted Flycatcher. So they're not they don't tend to be statistically significant when they first um, enter the data set uh, takes a few years to properly get a handle on what the um, data are showing us but at the minute it seems for those species fairly stable um, although spotted flycatcher have declined by um, over 50 percent over the last five years in Scotland so it's good to get a handle on some of these species because obviously some of them really do need flagging up as in trouble um, before they maybe disappear completely but one of the things I should also add is that in 2021, the coverage in Scotland was the highest it's ever been. So I think it was over, I should ask you now, how many, how many squares was it? Um, all out of stats. <laughs> I think it was, yes, yeah, 625. So coverage has just taken a massive leap forwards in Scotland, which is fantastic, especially after um, the restrictions in place during COVID, which meant that the survey took a bit of a, a dent in, for a couple of years. So to have that bounce back and then have it exceed coverage in 2021 was pretty impressive. Yeah. So yeah, more, more squares getting covered will really help to monitor more species and to monitor the species we already cover, but better. But some species that may be sort of, there's, there's a word that I can't remember, so I'm going to say invade again. Some, some species <laughs> that might, colonising, that's the one. 
<laughs> some species that might be sort of colonizing and, and spreading rapidly in the UK, for example, great white egret, you're not going to be able to generate a full trend for them until the, there are enough of them to average out 30 birds per year. Sorry, 30 squares per year over the yeah. whole duration of the survey. OK, right. Yeah. I understand. Or at least in the last five years. So, that, you know, great yes. white egret is a classic example of something that before we started doing 10 and five year trends, we wouldn't have got a trend for them probably ever. But now yeah. we do these five-year trends, we're more likely to get an idea um, of their population changes as they as they come along. But I think uh, that we are still way off. <laughs> Fair enough. Fair but enough. I have got um, there are some species which are closer to the threshold. Okay. Yeah. So we might um, in the next I don't know few years. I'm going to say again, be vague. Um, Canada goose, dipper, red kite, and mute swan. So they're kind of the targets. <laughs> okay. Excellent. So. You mentioned COVID briefly. Uh, I'm going to flip from from one virus to another. So obviously, something that um, is very is on everyone's mind at the moment is is avian flu. Do you think that perhaps not the breeding bird survey, but schemes such as this are going to be sort of hugely important in demonstrating what sort of impact bird flu has had? Yeah, absolutely, definitely. So um, I'll stick up for BBS a bit here. Um, we obviously monitor things like greyland goose and mallards in Scotland um, and even more water birds down in, well, across the UK as a whole. So, yes, surveys like BBS, obviously the Waterways Breeding Bird Survey, which is a slightly smaller survey, um, which covers kind of the same sort of methods, but along water courses. So we're looking at habitat specific trends for our riparian species. Um, so that's another one that could potentially help out here. Um, also, uh, the wetland bird survey, it's quite an obvious one, especially this winter, because obviously we don't know really how bad it's going to get or what's going to happen. So being able to monitor uh, through the winter will be important as well. So, yeah, lots and lots of monitoring. I suppose there's other scope here, which um, without you know promising anything, there is potential to collect additional information when you're out doing the normal surveys in a consistent so you're doing normal surveys in a very consistent way, but there's potential to kind of utilise this army of um, supporters and volunteers to help us get more data. Yeah, lots of lots of armies and uh, invasions going on here. Yeah, I got the theme here. I like it. <laughs> so, I mean, one, you, you very correct, you very rightly stood up for BBS, you know, monitoring of water birds and, and mentioned webs and stuff. But one of the groups of birds that isn't particularly well covered by existing sorry that by existing bto surveys perhaps is seabirds so this is a chance for you to put your take your <laughs> comfortable old hat off and put your shiny new hat on and tell us all about the smp i, I forgot to mention seabird monitoring <laughs> the list of things you can that's a great start to my new job role. um yeah so that's almost wrapping up now for um this year but um next summer this survey basically aims to count samples of seabird colonies across the UK um, and Ireland. And that isn't just coastal birds, this is inland colonies as well. So we think about terns and gulls. Um, so it is kind of like the BBS in that it's monitoring the breeding birds, but it's and it's counting them again. Um, and then about every 15 years or so, there's a census as well, which which aims to cover all of the colonies. So uh, the Seabird Monitoring Programme that I'll be coordinating from BTO 
that is a partnership with RSPB and JNCC again um, and we'll be trying to figure out kind of annual trends for as many of the seabird species as we can and uh, increasing coverage across the UK which will also help us to try and see the, the long-term effects of avian influenza I guess. I mean I think it, I will certainly get some angry phone calls if I don't mention that SMP has been around for quite a long time and has generated seabird trends for quite a long time as well but I think that you know it's fair to say that with it now in BTO's hands one of the one of the things that BTO are great at is sort of popularizing these things and getting people to go out and collect really high quality data and I think you know it's fair to say that JNCC were less good at that so that's really I guess what you're aiming to do is is to is to make this survey as big and uh, well well participated in as you know some of the really big ones now breeding bird survey and webs yeah definitely so we're looking forward to um taking the survey forward obviously we'll be working really closely with um jncc and um rspb and also 23 other organizations that form an advisory group as well so there's lots of support behind this survey um, one of the nice things uh, about BTO, one of the many nice things, is that we've got a network of regional organisers and representatives. So these are volunteers who help to manage the surveys locally. And without them, we wouldn't get the reach that we get for many of the surveys that BTO have kind of led on for, for a few years now. So um, hopefully be able to get the regional network engaged with um, the Seabird Monitoring Programme as well. And just having that local contact um, and that local knowledge is always invaluable to surveys. So I think that will be a huge boost to Seabird Monitoring Programme. That's quite exciting. So if people are concerned about the effects of bird flu or simply interested in getting involved with Seabird Monitoring, what what can they, where, where should they go? Presumably there's somewhere online they can go and express their interest. Yeah, definitely. So on the BTO website, there's um, a volunteering page and that kind of lists all the different surveys that you can get involved with so each survey will give you a little outline of the kind of skill sets that you need to be able to um, participate in the surveys just to make sure that you're kind of monitoring the sites as they need to be monitored some are a lot easier to take part in than others I think the seabird monitoring program is is really lovely in that sense because you can kind of choose one species that you're going to focus on and monitor Whereas the, in contrast, you've got the breeding bird survey where you kind of need to know the birds you're likely to encounter on a square, which again can vary massively, uh, but by sight and sound. So you can visit the BTO website, you can find out all the different surveys, and then there's links to interactive maps where you can look at survey sites and links to kind of registering to take part. So definitely worth having a look on there and seeing what, what you fancy doing. Well, I would second that. I'd certainly encourage anyone who wants to go and contribute to what has always been and will continue to be a really important project uh, what I'll do also is I'll put a link to the the page you're talking about in the in the, pod, in the podcast description so uh, for those listening uh, I don't I'm not going to try and tell you how to access the description it's the bit under the podcast uh, picture with all the words <laughs> in it there's going to be a link in there and uh, that'll take you to the page that Sarah was describing and after that very very poor attempt to uh, describe what I was going to do I think it's probably time to draw a line under that part of the conversation uh, thanks very much for that that was that really really informative it must be must be fascinating sort of 
having this constant overview of of what's going on and and why things are changing. Uh, don't tell me any more about it because it's just going to make me feel even more inadequate. Let's, <laughs> let's get on to the uh, let's get on to the birdery stuff now. We'll hear a little more from Sarah in a moment, but before then, we're going to listen to some bird noises. It's August. It's peak wader migration season, and we're going to have a listen to two closely related species that sound pretty similar, but with a bit of practice, you can be uh, quite sure to sell them to tell them apart. We're going to listen to common and green sandpiper. Both are on the move now. We've possibly missed peak season for common sandpiper, but greens are on the go right now. Uh, I was lucky enough to record one on my nocturnal recording station last week, and I was thrilled to see the sonogram come up, and I genuinely did a little air grab in the living room, and my partner looked at me like she regretted all of her life choices. Uh, so you can do something a bit more normal and go out and enjoy one in the field. But anyway, this is what you're listening out for. First, I'll play common sandpaper, and then after that, green sandpaper. So you can hear that structurally both of those calls are pretty similar. They're both bursts of the same note repeated three or four times, maybe maybe a few more occasionally. The calls differ in the sound of the individual notes that the birds are making. So first of all, common sandpipers are higher pitched. And secondly, you hear more of the upsweep in the green sandpiper. So what I mean by that is a common sandpiper just sounds like swee wee wee wee, higher pitched than that obviously. The green sandpiper, you can hear it going twee, 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 so you can hear the pitch of each individual note changing. Have another listen and see if you can pick those differences out. The other one to listen out for in this family is, of course, the wood sandpiper. This is similar to the other two in so much as it's a burst of the same note delivered three or four times in quick succession, but actually it sounds a little bit different. It's lower pitched again than green sandpiper, and as a result, it's got a much more sort of sombre quality to my ear, and each individual note is, sort of, is rather downslurred rather than going up like the common and green sandpiper notes do. Have a listen here. So there you go, that's common and green and wood sandpiper too. And now back to more birdie chat with Sarah Harris. I'm going to start with what I hope is going to be the question that I ask everyone first in this section. If you had access to a time machine <laughs> once and once only, what moment in your birding life would you go back to and why? I mean, could you change the course of events and you're there? Or would it be exactly the same? Because oh, I'm just thinking no. there's like the really boring answer, which is like, well, I'd go back and sort out some of these species that got away. 
that you thought were one thing and never quite nailed it before they disappeared. So I think there's a little shearwater that I'd like to catch up with. Uh, oh. past the calf and the calf and man when I was working out there and disappeared. Well, a little shearwater was seen in Cornwall, but <laughs> try not to dwell on that. There was a Palafis grasshopper warbler that possibly maybe could have been, maybe wasn't something that jumped up in front of us that we all we've all kind of been there, I guess. <laughs> with yeah. Like that. But I think I think going back to autumn twenty sixteen would be <laughs> probably something very pleasant to do. So um I spent a lot of my time at Spurn in twenty sixteen in October and I was spent oh, I must have got there in late September and I tried to I save up a lot of my leave basically all my leave to just hang out at Spurn for the autumn. So I was there in the high pressure in the Easterlies that just kept giving all all month. Mm. And there was just birds everywhere. There were gold crests everywhere. There were thrushes passing through, bramblings, you know, a barbed warblers, little buntings, all this stuff that kind of makes your skin tingle. <laughs> yeah. And so, it was just fantastic. But very was... wisely, sorry, you're very wisely choosing to go back to somewhere that lasts for a substantial amount of time. So everyone I've spoken to about this so far has like chosen a particular event or a particular day. But you like you can choose a season. There's nothing wrong with that. Go for yeah, it. Yeah, no, can... I'm going to submerse myself in one period of time, not from one yeah. species. So I'll exchange a species for a period of time. <laughs> OK, so I'm going to ask you, I'm going to delve a little bit deeper. So you can go back to the autumn of 2016. <clears throat> and we all know the autumn begins in the last week of June and ends... <laughs> in the third week of November if you could change any particular thing about that what would you do what would you what would be the sort of your key mission on on your time travel for me the autumn doesn't finish until mid-November because I'm a bit obsessed with migrating blackbirds so I would actually shift the time period a little bit because I need to see those blackbirds dropping mm. in at burn in November that's a must but I think the one thing that I would possibly have changed is that um I was at Spurn the day the first Siberian Accenture turned up in Shetland and we just cycled to the point to go and see a little bunting and then the news broke for the Siberian Accenture and everyone was so excited people were running about it was just the whole level of the tension in the air was just went even higher than it already was at Spurn that day so so we were all on a massive high but then I had to leave because I decided to go and hold out my mum and dad in for uh, about five days, I think it was. So I decided to get to Cornwall on public transport instead of driving. And I was on the train going to Cornwall when I found out the Cybernetic Centre had turned up at Spurn um, on the 13th of October. And I let out a little squeal on the train and everyone looked at me like I was a bit odd. <laughs> and then I went and had my, I can't remember if it was like a long weekend or four or five days, can't remember what it was bird in Cornwall with my parents which I absolutely loved um, and we made sure to count every dunnock in every valley just to try and keep ourselves <laughs> focused but it didn't work but I did manage to come back from Cornwall persuade my boss to give me some more days off and then the next morning drove back up to Spurn and saw the Siberian Accenture on the, its last day oh, so wow. that was really lucky um, and also there was a, a an Isabella and Wheatier then turned up and a Oh, was already there. So I went and had a look at that and then a Siberian stone chat turned up. So it, was, it all worked out fine in the end. But I think I would have liked to have stayed at Spurn 
and been there when the Siberian Express yeah. first turned up because when you're surrounded by your mates and people you know and something like that happens, I think I would have absolutely loved that. And the yeah, the atmosphere been must have brilliant. Been, <laughs> the atmosphere must have been really electric. I can imagine jumping on a train and and trying and, and leaving that and not feeling very happy about the whole thing. <laughs> so that was that was nearly the worst mistake you ever made. Tell me about some more of the biggest birding errors you've ever made. I think probably, well, there's loads of birding errors that <laughs> you just make in everyday birding, right? But um, none of them are often very amusing. They're just kind of ones that you quietly realise you've messed up on and, and just carry on. Why not tell you all something now? <laughs> so um, I was in a bird atlas square uh, in Aberystwyth in Wales, um, and I recorded a grey heron down in the valley next to a pond and then when I went back and did the survey again a couple of weeks later it was there again which I thought was a bit odd and then realised it was a plastic one so I quietly <laughs> deleted that record in, uh, in the bird house square so that was a bit of a, a bit of a mess up there and then I think one of the most embarrassing I guess was I went back to um, Ryan Meads which is where I grew up burning and ringing and uh, met some of the ringing group members for the first time because I'm not I don't get back there as much as I'd like to anymore and uh was just chatting to them about sort of the work I do and all this sort of thing and we were walking across the meadows and I just went oh a little egret and it was kind of when when for me little egrets on the patch were kind of something you pointed out to people so I pointed it out and as I finished saying egret this bird just started quacking really really loudly in front of everyone and I realised it was just like a white farmyard duck in the corner of the middle and <laughs> everyone just started laughing and then I don't think I was taken seriously after that. <laughs> it's, there are, I think you've touched on the, there are two there are two kinds of mistakes aren't there? the ones you make by yourself and like you say you can just sort of you know obviously Whistle. we all make those mistakes all the time quite often the only evidence that remains of them is a you know a little bit of scribble in a notebook or whatever <laughs> But then they're the ones that you make in front of other people and they, they tend to make the better stories because, you know, there's generally some uh, some comeback. I feel for like them. you've got one or two now. <laughs> well, I should. I mean, if I'm asking people to, to, to lay themselves bare like this, then I, I should be prepared to do it myself. It's um, fair, yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, the category one mistakes, those committed in front of... Committed? Makes them sound yeah. like crimes. Those uh, <laughs> made in, in front of other people ones that spring to mind would be I think on the first trip that I ever did up to Sandy in Orkney with my friends it was probably on the first day and I you know we we all had our rare heads on to some degree but you know I just I was convinced that we were just going to be rolling in rarities for for the week that we were there we all jumped out the car and started scanning over this lock and there was a red chunk by the side of the lock and I out of pure enthusiasm and not looking at the bird properly started calling it as a lesser yellow legs in my defense somebody else got on board with that and said yeah lesser yellow legs and then one of the guys probably said something really droll like where is it in relation to the red shank and oh. <laughs> um, another one was a, a grasshopper warbler that i flushed a girdle nest one september and i mean this isn't this isn't me being incompetent. This is just my brain sort of fooling me. But I was absolutely convinced that I saw pale tips to the tail feathers. So I put a message out saying, you know, basically words to that effect. I've just flushed in a, a Locustella with pale tips to the tail feathers. And everyone came down to Girdle Ness and 
started closing in on this bird and a mist net was put up and it flew into the mist net and it you know it was a bog standard grasshopper warbler with a bog standard grasshopper warbler's tail and i just wanted the ground to sort of swallow me up but you know actually that was really that was a really useful thing for me to do because i didn't know that many birders up here at the time and they were all incredibly nice about it you know they all these things happen they say and you know they're all, all saying sort of helpful and encouraging things like you know we'd rather know about these things than not and you know so oh is this is this the one of your um yeah the one i never got to the bottom of no bird ever came back out of that ditch at all not not one <laughs> but everyone was very nice about even though they're missing their dinner and that <laughs> but in, the, in, in category two mistakes ones that you make and nobody else gets to hear about until they come on this podcast um uh three oh how long ago six years ago now spotted creek bred on my patch which is bonkers seeing as it's a bond the size of a tennis court next to a housing estate and we sort of found out about them i think it was late april or early may or something i can't remember when it was exactly but about two weeks beforehand i'd gone down for a walk there with my partner and we were just you know just in the middle of the day and i heard this sound coming from this pool and I just thought, I don't, I don't know what that is. That must be some sort of frog or something. It's, you know, with hindsight, it sounded like a quiet spotted creek. But I just wasn't expecting it. And it wasn't giving it the full sort of nighttime whiplash sort of sound. I just, yeah, I just, I think I probably said to my other half, sort of frogs that, you know, that's a weird noise. And then we just walked on. And then about two weeks later, the, you know, we found these, these creeks and uh, a sort of, realize what what a catastrophic error i'd made and i've never told anyone until now so uh, <laughs> do you feel better for it <laughs> um are you gonna wait and so. see what messages you get later <laughs> i think so yeah yeah i'll wait i'll, I'll reserve judgment I, I do think it would be you know the birding scene would be healthier if we sort of talked more openly about these things so i feel like i'm being and contributing to the greater good but i also feel like an idiot so <laughs> I feel like you are as well because there's nothing worse than um, if you're stood with someone and then they turn around and say, "Did you see that?" and you go, "What?" and they say, "Oh, that, I couldn't quite get what it was, but it, it flew over and it's now like a million miles south." And you're like, "Right, that's great." So I think definitely at Rymeads when I was growing up and at Spurn, it's kind of like shout it out, get people on it, we'll sort it out later. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Everyone yeah. makes mistakes, doesn't matter. I've Not never birded with anyone who hasn't made a mistake. You know, it happens all the time. So um, perhaps not dwelling on your mistakes might be considered a decent piece of birding advice. What's the best bit of birding advice you've ever been given? Probably loads. Well, definitely loads. But um, I think one of the most useful things that got me thinking was um, when I was having just a chat uh, on Feral about kind of finding rare birds, basically. <laughs> and like, how do you find rare birds? Like, what's the best way to do it? And the upshot was kind of keep an open mind so try try not to because everyone in the autumn especially like they'll go out with an idea about what they're going to find in what habitat or where it's going to be and end up just looking for that specific species in that specific place while there's loads of other rare stuff just like all around you and you're just not seeing it so i think um trying to keep an open mind but also just questioning everything as well so don't keep it so open that you end up claiming this stuff that's not <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's a line to be drawn, isn't there? But I, I think um, it came about because one of my friends said that he tended to find 
most things on Farrell when he was a little bit hungover and his brain wasn't quite that focused on stuff. And then, yeah, I've found stuff at Spurn and I've been rather hungover as well, which <laughs> I think it is that just kind of like you're wandering around and you're not focusing on any one thing. You're looking at everything, you're looking everywhere and you're just taking it all in. Yeah, I mean, I think that, I mean, I'm, I'm not the best person to talk about rarity finding, but I think it's fair to say that I consider quite a few of the rarer things I found to actually have found me. You know, oh, it, yeah. certainly, it certainly wasn't, you know, focused, concerted effort on my part, I guess. I was there and I was alive to the possibilities and I guess switched on enough to You to kind notice. of knew what might be about and at what month and what yeah. likelihood is, but without staring at the specific area for a specific Yeah. Well we're on about rarities. Now, I know you don't live in Scotland and you have an encyclopedic knowledge of the trends in common Scottish birds, but what do you think might be the next first for Scotland? If it makes it any easier for you, you can just choose a first for Britain. Oh my goodness me. I have no idea. <laughs> <laughs> it's a tough one. It's a it's a tough uh, it's a tough thing to predict, primarily because people have been trying to to do this for a long time. There's lots of things on like various sort of internet forums and stuff like that where people are trying to predict the next first and they're doing you know it's the same old ones that keep coming out like Willet uh oh why why have you uh why have you written that down and not said it out loud I think it's it's a left field choice but hey why I just not thought it would be quite amazing to see coming in yeah, well, for the sake of people listening, Sarah scribbled down Black Woodpecker and, and showed me. I just thought I'd go for something totally wacky. Yeah, why not? I mean, I could imagine it, um, you know, coming in off somewhere like Dungeness or something, but hey, why not? You know, there's yeah, loads of them in Scandinavia. Why not in Why not in the Isle of May or Fair Isle or something like that? Yeah. Just imagine the mess if that was to happen. Especially on an island. Yeah. Especially on an island. Okay, finally, quite a morbid thought, but anyway, if you were to believe in reincarnation, what kind of bird would you like to be reincarnated as? Oh, I never. This is one of those questions that actually come up in your life, don't they? Like people actually ask you that sort of. It's pretty much the the question. Pretty much is what's your favourite bird, but without being as dumb as that. Oh no! Well, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> kind of. I definitely wouldn't want to come back as my favourite bird. My favourite bird is a sedge warbler, which is really quite boring, but beautiful and amazing. <laughs> and great, um, great I would. Well. I definitely wouldn't want to come back as a sedge warbler. That would be too scary. And yeah. the, the energy levels required. And no, that's too much. But I suppose I think the easy answer is to say like a little duck on a pond somewhere that never gets bothered and sometimes gets fed and things like that. But I think to be a bit cooler I'd probably go for a hobby because you get to do some pretty cool flying yeah um which could be quite exciting um you get to do a bit of migration you get to go and uh, stay warm in the winter time and yeah I, I think out of all the kind of birds that might be targeted by humans for persecution and stuff I, I, I just thought hobby is not going to be one that suffers too much from that sort of thing yeah so you can't really imagine a nice life on an rspb reserve in the summertime yeah. and then head off to warmer climates in the winter 
We were a long way from the dragonfly enthusiasts sort of going for hobbies, aren't we? <laughs> I think so. <laughs> well, in the last podcast, I mentioned to David Steele that I quite fancied being a Swift, if I could come back as anything. The, the no, migrating would put me off. But, no. I mean, if you're going to be dashing about as a hobby, then uh, maybe I'll be something else. <laughs> well, I just... Swifts have got these flat flies that live on them. Which, if if you're like proportionately, it'd be like having something the size of a dinner plate scuttling about on your skin, and I just don't think I could stand it. Because I, I also thought of um, Swift for the, the flight thing, but I, no, I don't think I could live with that. <laughs> do, you not, do you not think it would be fun, sort of screaming through the houses and dashing around on a late summer's eve? And you know, I, I've I've got a young daughter, so I'm already sort of used to having something small scurrying about me and draining my resources. <laughs> Um, <laughs> but yeah, <That's> <laughs> I'll, I'll, if, you, if you're going to be a hobby, then I'll, uh, I'll I'll choose something bigger. I'll choose a peregrine, perhaps. <laughs> Before we close the podcast, it's time for a bit more bird noise. It's August, and August is the time to see Mediterranean gull in Scotland, although it's still a rare bird throughout most of its range. It can be pretty similar to black-headed gull or common gull, whichever plumage you're looking at. Luckily for us, it has a really distinctive call, which can be helpful if you're sitting there sea-watching and one flies over your head. Have a listen here. Common gull has a call that is a little bit like that, but Mediterranean gull call is much lower in frequency, lower in pitch, that is, and it's a longer call. It's almost like a sort of a longer, slowed-down version of one of these calls. You can hear the detail a bit more. You can hear that it goes up and then goes down again, like that. And the common, the Collins Guide sums it up really nicely. It describes it as the sound of somebody saying, yeah, yeah, so you can you can hear it starts low and goes up and goes down again. So if you're lucky enough to be birding at the coast in Scotland in August or anywhere else where you get black-headed gulls in particular, listen out for that. I hope you've enjoyed listening to Some Ornithological Chat, a podcast called SOC by the Scottish Ornithologists Club. If you're interested in learning more about what the SOC do and have to offer, take a look at the website. That's wwwthe soc.org.uk and if you'd like to know what SOC branches near you have got going on, have a look at the local branches tab on that website. That's at www.the-soc.org.uk slash local branches. SOC members, September is coming, so you've got Scottish birds arriving in your letterbox or in your mailbox, whichever way you've decided to get it. For those who aren't members, if you'd like to have a sneak peek of what you might find in, in Sky Scottish Birds, you can do that on our website. 
So I'd just like to thank Sarah Harris once more for this fantastic, fascinating insight into the breeding bird survey and what it can tell us, and also for telling us about how she went to Cornwall by mistake. Likewise, I'd like to thank Zena Canto for making their repository of bird sounds available for people like me to do hopefully interesting things like this with. So thanks very much, and until the next time, good birding.